think if the church through mental health ministries can open wide the doors and say this is a welcoming place where you can come talk about your schizophrenia talk about your depression your anxiety we're not going to judge you we're not going to kick you out we're not going to demand a cure we're here to accompany and companion each other and love each other as we struggle through these mental health concerns the church would be a unique place when people are able to do that to have that sense of community How can awareness of mental health issues be viewed through the lens of our Christian values? What kind of help can we offer loved ones struggling with these complex challenges? On today's episode, President of the Association of Catholic Mental Health Ministers, Deacon Ed Schoner, shares how a deeply personal brush with mental illness created an entirely new ministry language in the spirit of the new evangelization. In this development of a mental health ministry where mind, body, and soul and of the ministers and the church can address that longing that we all have. So yes, by all means, go out and get therapy and counseling, but there's something more that's needed. Uh, there's, it, there's this deeper longing for Christ, and we're never going to get our heads straight if we're only, you know, two legs of that. And I think for, for so many of us that live with these conditions, that's what we want. We, yeah. know, we know you can't treat our depression or our schizophrenia or whatever it is that you're dealing with. But we do know you can love us and you can accept us. And don't make us have to put on a, a happy face or some sort of mask in some way. You know, just be with us. As part of the body of Christ, we honor him through service to one another. By listening, accompanying, and loving those who struggle, we can draw nearer to God and grow toward our own perfection in the process. This is Living the Call. Deacon Ed Schoner, welcome to the show. Nice to meet you, Deacon Charlie. It's great to be here, and in, uh, you know, planetary alignment fashion, right? Because uh, I do want to let the audience know, uh, just a couple weeks ago, we did a remote uh, recording also in Austin, Texas. We're on remote today in San Diego, or North County, but San Diego, California, and we're being hosted uh, by the good folks at Catholic Answers. And so I want to recognize uh, Darren Lozier, um, Cy Kellett, Chris Check, et cetera, folks who let us uh, have access to this beautiful studio so it that we could, uh, we could record this. You happen to be here. I was like, well, let's uh, kill two birds with one stone and uh, not have you drive to L.A. to do the show. Right. My, it's a happy coincidence. My son and his family lives here in San Diego, and uh, I do a lot of work through the mental health ministry here in San Diego with Auxiliary Bishop Dolan and some other folks. So it's a, it's a nice coincidence. Yeah, for sure. He, is, is he here, Bishop Dolan? I think he's in Baltimore. Oh, at the, okay. At the bishop's uh, meeting in Baltimore. I wouldn't want to keep the bishop outside if he was. Right. You could right. at least uh, you could at least listen. I've been really looking forward to this, Deacon, because um, and we talked briefly about this on the phone. Your story, and I know that you've been in ministry for a number of years. I think you were ordained in two thousand four. Yes, five is that right? two thousand four? So you've mm-hmm. been doing a lot of ministry, and you you even had a focus on mental health uh, prior to uh, a mental health issue touching your family much more personally, perhaps than than it had, but you've been involved in this ministry for a while. I've been involved in this ministry for a while. Like so many people, I got involved because it touched my family. Mm -hmm. Uh, My daughter, Katie, lived with bipolar disorder, bipolar one, which has manic highs and and then also lows of depression. So I started to explore it before she died. My daughter, Katie, died in August of 2016 by Mm -hmm. suicide. Um, I'm sure it was an impulsive suicide. She had the, her particular type of bipolar disorder. She led a good life, very, uh, 
you wouldn't know she had a mental illness. Mm. Like so many people with mental illnesses, they, they cover it up real well. Yeah, you wouldn't know. Yeah, she was an accomplished student, had masters from Ohio State, et cetera. Very, very well put together. Oh, yeah, woman. outgoing, exuberant, mm-hmm. friendly, tons of friends, you know. Uh, but yeah, she'd have these periods where this illness would take over her mind, and occasionally she'd get manic and got totally detached from reality with some of her thinking, like she could control all the computers in her mm-hmm. dorm room or something like that. But then she would also have these periods of depression where for her to be like falling off the edge of a table she'd mm. be fine and like five minutes later she couldn't even read a sentence uh, yeah. and she'd be incredibly depressed uh it, these are tough illnesses these are very very difficult illnesses and we need to do better as far as the medical care but you know as a church we yeah. can do better too with opening the doors up and well i think that's people. That, that's part of if i understand correctly of your journey around the ministry that you're the ministries you're carrying out right now was in large part because you sort of recognized a vacuum after after the death of your daughter with respect to you know ministries devoted to 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 mental health in from a catholic context well i tell you right? the, the second most shocking thing you know next to katie's death uh, even though you know we always worried about it because with mental illness any parent will tell you it's always in the back of your mind mm-hmm. uh, with so many of these illnesses that it might lead to a death by suicide. Mm-hmm. But we, of course, didn't know it was going to happen in August 2016. So that was a sh- horrible shock. I can imagine. Yes. Uh, but the second most shocking thing was the response to Katie's obituary. Uh, the night she died, and I'll until I get to meet Jesus myself directly, I'll swear the Holy Spirit was, was with me because it was only two or three hours after she died, I wanted to sit down and write an obituary. And my mm. wife couldn't understand what am I doing, you know, mm. sitting at a computer. But I wrote this short obituary that simply said she had a mental illness, she died by suicide, but that's not how she was defined. God knew her as a beautiful creation of his and that there's so much fear and ignorance uh, around mental illness and discrimination and we can do better and we need to be more open and loving about it. And as when people talk about her death over the coming days to remember that she was a beautiful child. Well, I tell you, I, I, I joke, uh, that it was God's way of hitting this lunkhead from Scranton, <laughs> Pennsylvania over the head with a two by four. Oh boy, and he did, didn't he? He did with I mean, this obituary viral. going viral. Yeah. I heard, you know, I never knew what it was for anything to go viral, neither Katie or I or celebrities of any kind. Mm-hmm. We, I, we heard from thousands, tens of thousands of people from all over the country and all over the world. Yeah, this was covered extensively. It I mean, was. Washington Post, uh, religious and uh, non religious media, social media. I mean, it, it really did it uh, really break through. It and, and it did. Um, and my conclusion from that is, is that it spoke to the fears and needs of people that live with these illnesses and and for the families that grieve someone that died by suicide. So I took that as a message for me to jump into this both feet in this ministry. And fortunately, I heard from some other folks around the country that were uh, tapping in or trying to develop this ministry a little bit. There wasn't much going on, but a little bit. Uh, So we decided to get together and form this network, Association of Catholic Mental Health Ministers. By coincidence, again, by coincidence, Bishop, uh, the, the Diocese of San Diego was the only diocese in the country at the time that was doing much in an organized way to address mental mm. health and mental health ministry. Which I find fascinating. Yes. I mean, it's surprising, not good, but surprising. Well, that's changed. Fortunately, yeah. that's changed since then, but that was the only one back then. And that's how I got to know Auxiliary Bishop Dolan mm-hmm. from San Diego. Because, you know, generally, whenever you think you got it bad, someone else seems to have it worse. Mm-hmm. And Bishop Dolan's family, he lost two siblings to suicide. Side, mm. plus a uh, brother-in-law mm. so my you know my heart goes out to him and his parents too uh, so he deeply understands 
the importance of this ministry, the need uh, for the presence of the church and the presence of Christ in the lives of people that deal with these illnesses. So he and I and some other folks have, have teamed up to build up this ministry. So things are better than they were. At least there's more activity in mental health ministry around the country than there were a couple years ago. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Um, I do want to affirm in the obituary, which I've read several times, I, I want to affirm the presence of the Holy Spirit, even though neither one of us will know for sure, but because of its authenticity. Yes. And it's and and frankly, it's brevity as well. So, so it was brief, super authentic, very genuine, and it hit on a very important insight. And the insight that I that I that I got from reading it, which you've kind of touched on, but I'd love for you to go deeper on it, is this identification or the identity of the person being their illness, and how A, wrong that is, and how B, counterproductive that is when we consider someone bipolar, or consider someone he's or she is schizophrenic, or whatever it is. And even though intellectually, Deacon, I understand what you said, I had, it had never hit me the way that it did when I, until after I read your obituary, that I can see having done this myself, and, and really classifying a person by virtue of an immutable characteristic or a, a, an illness that is not in accord with how we were supposed to view people in terms of Catholic anthropology. And it's not very Christian, right? It, but, I, but I recognize that in myself. So I think the obituary also had that insight about not associating or, or identifying people with their illness. I think that's where the Holy Spirit was present in that obituary. I'm absolutely convinced of that, that somehow through that obituary, you know, it's just one small thing and a, and a big sea of, uh, of, of uh, discussion about around this topic. But yes, it's called first person language hmm. that you use. You see the person first. And you're right. that It's a deeply Christian point of view. It's what Christ saw in everyone. I always, uh, the uh, one story or the the, the best analogy in scripture is the way Christ saw lepers. Mm. Uh, Christ did not see the leprosy. People back then called them lepers. That's right. <laughs> they forgot they lost their identity. And I think the it's just almost I, the same thing. You know, with men, back in the day, leprosy was not well understood. They thought as a result of poor parenting or maybe the sin of their ancestors. There was some sort of punishment from God. And people didn't want to be around people that had leprosy. And they yeah. were sent off to the side of town. You know? That sounds awfully familiar uh, to the way that so many people with uh, mental illnesses are treated, and that we can do better. And I, th I know Christ wants us to do better and wants to use us as broken and distorted instruments as we are to bring his love into the lives of people that deal with these conditions. And that definitely has happened. You said something very interesting to me when we had our preliminary call about, you know, that this, this trauma and tragedy that you've gone through has been almost a source of a new evangelization in a way, or, or maybe part of the new evangelization in the sense that, and maybe that was a more unexpected thing that's come about for you in, in doing this work. Yeah, I've been, as you and I were talking about it, there's, uh, there's something going on there. It's more than simply uh, being a, an extension of mental health care. This is part of Christ wanting to open the doors of the church more broadly and use this language of mental health care and depression and anxiety as a way to open the church up to these 
concerns that are throughout society mm. now. You know, throughout our, our society now, we not we don't have we're not working in at least in the West. We're not working in the fields, and we're not working in factories so much anymore. We have a life for most many of us. You know, pretty a lot of leisure, a lot of decent income, but we're afflicted by these yeah, mental yeah. health concerns. Yep. And I think the church is slowly coming around a way, to a way to uh, talk to this mm. and and enter into these concerns and and as a result evangelize the broader culture because that's where the culture is right now so finding the right words finding the right ways to talk about this and to let christ enter into it uh, is is an important part of the evangelization of our culture it's really fascinating to me because i've had a number of conversations recently um i want to say two things i've had a number of conversations recently about the journey of faith that we as americans have historically made uh, you know, especially in a Catholic context, has been historically marked by things like, you know, growing up in a Catholic household, going to Catholic school, the, the kind of on-ramps right. to the faith, mm, right? right? Sadly, a lot of those on-ramps have changed, or they've shrunk, or they've been impacted by a thousand and one different things. And my contention is that the first few steps into that spiritual journey are different now. I'd never thought about mental health as one of those potential first steps into a broader understanding that there's something greater happening here. But it very well could be, um, because I think young people in particular, you know, at least to a point I'm not familiar with ever experiencing, are coming across issues of anxiety, depression, you know, and there's this big counter movement around mental health. But a lot of those counter movements, to my mind, are not necessarily oriented to anything greater, right? They're not oriented to the gospel. And so, you know, I guess the two things that I, I'd love your thoughts on is, number one, do, do you, what do you think of that in terms of mental health as a, you know, step one or two, because everybody seems to have a lot of concern about this, into that kind of spiritual, um, you know, journey? And the second part of that question is about why you feel that today we're experiencing, at least it seems more visible, a lot of this anxiety, depression, and, and mental angst that's impacting a lot of young people. That's an interesting insight you have, the way you describe it about the on-ramps have changed, closed, perhaps, uh, and that mental health, the conversation about mental health is a way for Christ to enter into people's lives. Because, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in counseling or therapy, but a lot of that revolves around uh, you really beginning to have a deeper understanding of yourself, why you do th- the things you do, what uh, what were some of the you know the traumas or other things that occurred in your life that led you to the point where you are right now and how you're dealing with these anxieties and and you know so often in those conversations God and Christ is not, not part there. of that conversation and we are made to long for Christ Amen. and I think in this development of a mental health ministry where mind body and soul and of the ministers and the church can address that longing that we all have. So yes, by all means, go out and get therapy and counseling, but there's something more that's needed. Uh, there's, it, there's this deeper longing for Christ, and we're never going to get our head straight, so to yeah. speak, if we're only, you know, two legs of that. Uh, so we, I, I, I'm the more we 
think about this, Deacon Charlie, and the more we talk about it, I'm, I'm beginning to see that. Yeah. that. That's the strength of this, the broad, broader discussion of this ministry is, is that. I definitely think there's something afoot. The Holy Spirit, you know, the, it's, it's why the Holy Spirit is so often uh, associated with wind, right? Is because you can kind of feel it blowing in a particular direction. And I definitely do think that mental health, uh, understanding, a consciousness about it in general can be a step in that process of getting to know Jesus Christ, which ultimately is the divine physician and the healer of all souls. But, you know, I think back, just to contrast it, let's go back a hundred years. Would it have been there? Would it have been the same on-ramp or potential to develop a relationship around Jesus Christ through mental health? I would posit not. I would say a hundred years ago, people were not talking about maybe not even 150, I don't know, but right. like they weren't talking about mental health. It was the kind of thing you did quietly, if, if at all, or you kind of said, well, that's Uncle Jim and he's right. you know, not right. well. But now it seems like there's this public kind of um, interest in, and a lot of it driven by the data, which is right. not good, right. but this public interest in the whole idea of, of mental health and what a great ministerial, what a great evangelical opportunity that could potentially be. So... Just as we're talking about this, I'm I'm thinking. Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I, you know, you're ex- exactly right. One of the one of the main types of therapy is called cognitive behavior therapy, and it, the essence of cognitive behavior therapy is to try to understand why you're thinking what you're thinking and mm-hmm. then responding accordingly. Well, the piece that's missing from that in the secular world is discerning how God's moving in your life. Part of cognitive mm. behavior therapy should include a spiritual dimension because God, as you know, Deacon Charlie is very much present in our lives. It's not like you you go in and get your mental health and then God sits in a box over there on the other side of the room and God's in the counseling session with you in therapy. Absolutely. And trying to understand and discern that is is something that the the, the people are longing for these days. And I don't have all the answers yet, but the more I'm involved with this ministry, the more I'm becoming convinced that there's something going on here. The other kind of biblical citation for this might be, uh, I forget exactly where in Matthew it is, but it ties back to the scene that you were describing about the, the, the leprosy, and that is uh, the man born, born blind and the disciples asking Jesus, well, is this be- like, why is he blind? Is it because of something he did or it's because of what something his parents did? And Jesus's answer makes no sense, right? When he initially says it, he's like, neither. It's so the glory of God could be made manifest. Mm-hmm. And then he proceeds to heal the blind man. Mm-hmm. And so you ask yourself logically, well, if the man hadn't have been blind, there wouldn't have been a healing. There wouldn't have been this miracle that these people experienced that then drew them closer to God. So maybe it's in that same spirit, right? Which is mental health, which objectively is not something that God desires, nevertheless is there as a kind of you know, ministerial seedbed uh, of some sort in order that we can communicate uh, the glory of God and make God's glory manifest, right? Yeah, yes, because in these mental health treatments and counseling on that, there's there's always this discussion of what makes me happy, what do I need, you know, what do I want to do with my life? Well, all of those questions are fundamental Christian questions, too, that we all go to God for. So, yeah, there's something going on there. You're absolutely right that these, as these fundamental existential questions are asked through our mental health treatment programs, people are starting to realize that, well, these are difficult questions and that uh, 
we long for God. We long for something bigger than just us Absolutely. and our own personal desires. There's something more going on there. Mm-hmm. And the the the, uh, the word the word quite often that you hear Pope Francis use, and I think is a, a very good word, is accompaniment. That the church is called to accompany people, you and me, and not uh, you know everyone, to accompany people as we struggle with these mental health issues and our these deeper desires as to where where are we going, what's mm. life all about. Mm. I mean, mental health. When you get into mental health counseling and therapy, a lot, these all these questions come up. Yeah, and uh, God wants to be present in the midst of it as we try to struggle and discern the answers to these questions in our lives. I think the other interesting thing about it is it. it if you think of on one side, sort of secular counseling, psychology, psychiat- you know, psychi- psychiatric care, and then on the other side, you think of something like spiritual direction. Mm-hmm. There might be room for this kind of middle thing, right? Which is, it reminds me of my friend, uh, Father John Hopkins, that I also briefly mentioned to you, is uh, the director, executive director of Divine Mercy Clinics in the Diocese of Los Angeles. And his vision is just basically to provide... Uh, counseling from a standpoint of Catholic anthropology, Mm -hmm. meaning, yes, you're dealing with these issues and you have them, whatever they may be, but the, the, the sent, the Christ being the center of the counseling, right. And, 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 and with you, as you said, beautifully in the room with you, as you're kind of dealing with this stuff, it seems to me like that would almost be something in the middle of secular counseling, which doesn't bring Christ in at all, and spiritual direction, which is a very different thing, is not counseling, right. is not psychiatric, it's not, right. you know, about that, it's not behavioral therapy, but it's sort of like this sort of middle thing. Right, yeah, I'm a spiritual director, and spirit as spiritual direction, we help people discern where God's guiding them and, and where the Spirit's moving in their life. That's mm-hmm. like their vocation. What, what, what is God calling me to do? What should I do in this decision that's coming up? That's what spiritual direction is about, discerning discerning those the answers to those kind of questions. Uh, the other thing that I think, too, is, that's moving in this is, is that God's calling us to support each other in community. Mm. So so often mental health treatment is one-on-one with a counselor, a therapist, or a psychiatrist. Oh, that's super interesting, yeah. But, you know, we're built for community. Yeah. God's made us for community, to be able to openly talk to each other about our concerns and to support each other. And uh, I think there's a real longing, because as you know, a lot of our church communities, sadly, have kind of broken apart a little bit, mm. you know, from what they were 40, 50 years ago. You hear people talk about the good old days when we had all these community events. We're getting isolated for a variety of reasons, and the coronavirus pandemic didn't only accelerated that. But we're not made for that. We're mm. made to be in community. We're made to be with each other. And I think if the church through mental health ministries can open wide the doors and say, this is a welcoming place where you can come. Talk about your schizophrenia. Talk about your depression, your anxiety. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to kick you out. We're not going to demand a cure. We're here to accompany and companion each other and love each other as we struggle through these mental health concerns. That would make the church would be a unique place when people are able to do that, to have that sense of community. It would be... You know, I, we have uh, spiritual support groups in Scranton and a couple other places around the country where, and they are spiritual support groups for people that live with mental illness or their families. They're not, you know, uh, treatment groups. And, and the folks that live with these illnesses say, this is the first time I've been able to come and talk openly with other people who understand about my illness, 
about my suicidal ideation, about my suicide attempts. I mean, things that most people are shocked and don't want to hear about. Mm-hmm. And and reflect on where is God in the midst of all of this? Yeah. Does God love me? Am I going to be accepted in heaven because I tried to kill myself once? Mm. Uh, you know, these are deep questions that people long to discuss. They really want to discuss these things. And I'll tell you, as a parent of someone that had uh, a child that had uh, mental illness, when our Katie was diagnosed, uh, sadly, the church was the last place I thought to go hmm. that would understand what was going on. That says a lot, but and, I understand why you yeah, would do that. Now, yeah, but now, so when... So now we have a spiritual support group for the caregivers, mostly parents of people that live with a mental illness. And uh, those groups, as gut-wrenching as they can be, because people usually come in crisis, their child was in a psychiatric hospital or attempted suicide, they think they are all alone, that no one understands what's going on. So for them to be able to come into a, into a, into a church rectory basement or a church facility and openly talk with other people who understand what they're going through and they can cry there's a lot of tears and crying in that meeting in particular because people are in shock Um, and 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 to pray together is just so healing Hmm. it doesn't make the illness go away of course you still need the medical care but the uh, but it's so spiritually healing to know that you're not abandoned that you're with a with a community of people that love you and that somehow Christ is present in that room because uh, there's definitely is a deep bonding there. Uh, so it's a beautiful thing to see. It's, it's, I get teared up talking yeah, about it. Yeah, I totally understand why. To it's see, beautiful. But, um, it is a beautiful thing. Well, this idea of community is very powerful, too, and also very much part of our, of course, understanding of anthropology or our being Christian. It also necessitates a kind of transparency that can be scary. For a lot of people. One of the notable aspects of the obituary that you wrote um, after Katie passed was the the idea of sharing the fact that she passed by way of suicide to the world, which is, you know, forget about the mental illness. This is a step beyond that. But I'm curious how that of, you know, making that public, you know, um, created community around you did it did because i mean it does by necessity the fact that you're bringing you're informing everybody of this you're creating this sort of sense of visibility into what actually happened that it's sort of a building block for that community if people don't know and they're not united in one thing it's kind of hard to make community around something right right yeah it it built built community i guess in the sense that we were very open about what happened we shared it we said we named it uh, and yes, at that point, after Katie died, I did have a tremendous sense of support from my community in Scranton, from our friends and neighbors. It was like, okay, now you can talk about it. I mean, everybody kind of knew Katie had, had a mental illness, uh, but it wasn't real open. And we were self, the word is called self-stigmatizing. Hmm. We were self-stigmatizing too. We didn't want to, it to be widely discussed. But when she died, it was like, okay, what else? There's nothing else to lose here parents let's talk about this so you're right it gave us a deep sense of community that we could openly talk about it with our friends and our neighbors and with people well you know across the country and across the world openly talk about this uh you know one of the wonderful things that pope francis did last month on october 10th world mental health day at his angelus it was a very short prayer but he he said that we should pray for people who live with mental health disorders and those who die by suicide, Mm. often young. And we need to be a welcoming community where there's no stigma or discrimination. Short prayer, but the fact that the Pope 
use the S word. Yeah. And you'll hear, see very few papal statements about suicide and in a way where he wasn't condemning them, where he's had this insight that it is related to, uh, to a mental health disorder or some sort of su- su- extreme psychological stress, that it's an irrational act, mm. in essence, that, that led to that death. It, 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 I think by naming it and... And talking about it sort of normalizes it, and it's a way to build a community. It is. It's a way to build community. I want to get to the to the to the to the Pope and the Vatican uh, piece because you got a, a call recently from the Vatican, so we'll talk about that in a second. But um, I did want to just touch on this idea of community. My wife is a survivor of sexual abuse uh, and rape, and mm-hmm. she had a very traumatic childhood. Uh, was homeless for a number of years. Oh my goodness. You you yeah. name it. She's, she'd gone through it. And the Lord, through a variety of different uh, relationships and other things, uh, thank God, has brought her uh, out of that and has driven a tremendous amount of healing, so much so that now her ministries, and she's an author and she's a speaker, revolve around these kind of things. One of the parts of her story is that she attempted suicide twice mm. and was unsuccessful in doing so. Mm. The reason I bring that up is to make this point that you just made, which is I've gone to her talks. And I've gone to, you know, her, the settings where she's sharing her story. And inevitably, people come up from the people who are listening, and they kind of form a cue, right? And they're mm-hmm. all, and a lot of times that happens just because you want to talk to the speaker. Sure. But out of 20 people that may come up to talk to her after a talk, half of them say to her, you know, I, I tried it too, or I thought about it, or... A, a particular trauma that she articulated also had happened to them. Right. And they say, I've never shared this with anybody. Right. And so the idea of, you know, being open and transparent, despite the fact that it's difficult to do, but it is a means by which, at least in her case, it has been a source of, you know, connection, ministry, accompaniment, right? That I don't know would have existed otherwise. Right. right? And the church is the place where that can happen. And, and it's is a place where we can offer that accompaniment. I've had the same experience. I when I talk uh, at, at events and I have, it's heartbreaking, isn't it, to have people come up and say, "Yeah, my." A 60-year-old man come up and say, yeah, my dad killed himself when I was a teenager and I haven't talked about it for 50 years. I mean, that's just heartbreaking uh, to hear those kind of stories. But that's all too familiar a story that I hear. And that's one of the reasons that Bishop Dolan and I uh, edited two books uh, uh, on suicide, one for pastoral leaders and another one for people that have lost someone to suicide. And one of the things we thought was very important to do was to tell our stories and have other Catholic leaders tell their stories about uh, suicide, either the love, uh, the death of a, a child or a brother or sister, and even priests die by suicide, mm. uh, and to talk about that and to um, uh, try to get a deeper understanding of where Christ is in the midst of all of that. I mean, the teaching of the church is uh, that uh, Christ is the great psychiatrist, understands this far better than we do. For sure. And the mercy of Christ is made present to those who die by suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's maybe beyond our understanding, but we, the church teaches that. And I'll tell you, when Katie died, it was very consoling. Our bishop and the other members of the clergy and a large community show, show, showed uh, their support at her funeral. And uh, so, um, yeah, I think talking about this can build a community, and we just need to be... Those of us, and even in leadership positions in the church or in our parishes, can be more 
open about this and share our stories so it's not like an us them sort of thing where us sitting up there in the altar and clergy are not affected by this but you people in the pews that's that, that's more something you guys have right. to deal with it we're all affected by this we're all affected by this illness talk about the related to this talk about the call that you got from the vatican yeah, as you can imagine, as a, as a not as every a, day occurrence. As a Catholic, you know, <laughs> I got this email, and uh, you know, at first I was wondering if it was for real, of course. But I got back to them, and it's the people associated with the the, the Pope's monthly prayer intention. It's called the Pope's Video. Uh, yeah, and they were calling for some support and, and information and how to put together the uh, the package, if you will, that goes with the Pope's monthly prayer intention. It's for November of 2021. Is intentions for people who suffer from depression. Mm. Uh, to pray for them so they were uh, the folks are wonderful to work with there's a beautiful video that's put together where the pope talks about this prayer intention for 20 minutes he also uh, recognizes the importance uh, uh, of getting psychological care of mental health treatment but he also recognizes that spiritual support's necessary so there's this beautiful little video that's put together that uh, uh, discusses that and all sorts of other ancillary material about how to help people with, that are experiencing depression and other information so so yeah, I'd go to the Pope video is, is the website or you can, and we've been spending a lot of time through the association of Catholic mental health ministers to get the word out about this. Uh, I would love to have every uh, Catholic in the pew know that the Pope's talking about depression and mental health For and suicide. Sure. Uh, we'll, we'll take a good run at it and see how many, how many people we can get that message to. Uh, and we'll include the video and the Holy Father's Angelus address as well in the show notes for this show. So people can, you know, very quickly uh, reference that information. But one of the, th- the questions that I had for you broadly is maybe the timing of the Pope's focus on this particular issue, because I think it ties into this broader thing that I've been observing. Now, I'm not an expert in, in this area, certainly not to the degree that you may have this information, but just in general, this, in, the, in this country in particular, what seems like an increasing rise of anxiety and depression. One statistic, and this was from Pew, that members of Gen Z, Generation Z, which are you know basically not the youngest single-digit people, but the ones that come right after, right, people right. generally speaking born between the mid '90s and and you know the first decade of this century, are growing up in an age of increased stress and anxiety. Some 70% of teens across all genders, races, and family income levels say that anxiety and depression are significant problems among their peers. 70%. So the timing of Pope Francis, that seems great, but what do you think, or I know there's not one thing, but what, what's driving this? I think it's the isolation and the lack of community. That's my personal observation, is, is that uh, there's this insecurity that uh, comes as a result of us not being present to each other in a real and deep spiritual way. Mm. You know, at, at Katie's, after Katie died, a lot of her friends came over, and that was I was shocked to hear that as they're sitting in our backyard and on our deck and that talking about Katie and talking, talking about the whole thing around her suicide. And my wife and I were shocked to hear them talking about that themselves. They were all like Katie's age, twenties, late twenties, early thirties, about the anxiety. And I'm sitting there thinking, as an older person, I'm thinking, well, wait, you guys, you know, have a pretty secure life, you know, you're all going to college, you know, things are pretty good. How come all this anxiety and depression in your life? It's not like you're in a war-torn part right. of the world. 
And yeah, they just don't have this sense of community, this sense of closeness, this mm. sense of social support. They're kind of out there on their own. You know, they you know they have all sorts of social media uh, contacts. You know, it's a great irony. Uh, yeah, social it, media is yeah, not very that's social. Not real, that's not real community. I mean, that's that's some, that's helpful. You know, but it's not real community. So I'm. I'm coming to the conclusion, and I, you know, I read a, a lot of researchers also talk about the same sort of uh, thing. Is is that there is this community that's lacking this sense of true support of the individual? Mm. It's all revolves around uh, right now. I think a lot of this anxiety is because people are becoming more and more defined by what they do, how they look, you know, rather than who they who are. They are. Who and they whose are. they are. And whose, well, that's true too. And whose they are. They're kind of detached from this uh, 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 reality, mm. this mystical supernatural reality. They're getting detached from it. And I know, like I'm sure with you, my life, uh, when the storm hits, you know, you cling to the, what you cling to is, is Christ. You cling, you cling to the, uh, in the, the boat, rock. you cling to the rock. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that to cling to, you're just kind of knocked around all over the place. You're like the disciples in the boat that are just kind of banging around and fearing for their life. Can you imagine, you know, they, they didn't use the word in scripture, but I'm sure the, a good word these days would be where they were filled with anxiety and, you know, and, and all the rest of those concerns, uh, mental health concerns. They were filled. They knew what it was like to be anxious and abandoned. And, and then Christ came into their life, walking, miraculously walking on the water and calming the storm. Yeah. I think that's a good analogy for what's going on now with mental health conditions. They're just kind of knocked around. The boat's, you know, churning. The world seems crazy. And what are they tethered to? You know, where, where do they go? Yeah. You know, and Christ is the answer. And, and our church communities need to... Make it apparent that that's the answer as best we can to open our doors up and say, we recognize your anxiety and we recognize your depression. We uh, accept you with warts and all. You've attempted suicide. You've been cutting. Okay. We understand. We understand. We're here to provide help. Uh, we're here to provide an answer to all of those anxieties. Because I think uh, the other thing is with this mental health ministry is, is that we can speak that language. We can openly say, talk about cutting. Okay, we, under, we know what cutting is. We understand that. You know, self-abuse, you know, looking in all the wrong places, you know, sexual, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? You know, Proclivities. Proclivity, or, yeah. yeah mm -hmm. Promiscuity, Promiscuity, I guess, if you want to use mm -hmm. it, that, that word. We understand that. Okay, that's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. We understand that that's what happens. And just be open and accepting about that and not be judgmental. I think a lot of young people think that, the church is going to judge them mm -hmm. and that they can't talk about these things mm -hmm. in the church. And perhaps that it was true. It should be quite the contrary, right? Perhaps be, that was the... true at one time. Yeah. Perhaps, you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine uh, last night who was went to the Vatican Museums and was complaining about how the popes from a couple of, couple of hundred years ago had all the genitalia chopped off the uh, the statues. So, yeah, so that's, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and had them covered up in that. So maybe there was a time when you can talk about these things. Sure. Uh, but that's... We're, that's that's well, got to change. And that's got to change. And I think importantly, <laughs> as we receive and accompany these young people, also to you know, if you've cut, you're you are not a cutter. Right. You are not a suicidal ideator. Right. You are not a depressed. Right. A depressed person. Right. You are who you are going through these experiences. Just that separation, because I agree, there is a whole movement, popular and otherwise 
to try to increasingly identify people based on things that are not at the core of, of who they are, right? That right. there are these externalities or there are these, right. whatever it is, political affiliation or some other thing. And in that world where that's the frame, then yeah, if I cut myself, then I'm kind of, that's now my identity. Right, right. And, and, and even speaking to them, kind of breaking that linkage, I think is a huge part of, of, of having the kind of conversations that are going to lead to long-term healing. Right. And, and the church, we need to be able to speak that language and know what, know what that is. And when it comes up, that be at least somewhat familiar with it. And, uh, and to tell our stories about Scripture using that language, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to draw analogies between Scripture and these mental health concerns and the, the issues that are going on today to... to to, to use the language of the church to talk about cutting, to talk about mental health uh, and, and all the other, the mania that may come sure. come around, uh, to talk about all these things in the context of the faith. And we, and that's one of the things that, you know, you and I were talking earlier about the spirit moving in all of this and building this ministry up in the church. I think that's one of the things that we need to get a deeper understanding of it to evangelize the broader culture is to find that language, to talk about the, the challenges uh, of, of living a healthy uh, life, healthy mental health life, uh, using the language of the church to address that. Uh, we, we can do more with that. Uh, like, th- like one of the things like you were saying, mm-hmm. saying earlier about the, the, um, the blind man being uh, healed by Christ. I think the story of the lepers, lep- leprosy is a good way to talk about it. And I'm sure there's many other stories, the, the Christ in the storm, and we can start to weave into the, these languages. Uh, and I tell you, the other thing, uh, Deacon, is and you preach and I preach, I was going to ask you about this. I think it's important to weave this language into homilies and to talk about it in church mm. and to name it out loud. I, I, I make it a point once or twice a year to talk about suicide in a homily, yeah, particularly during Suicide Awareness Month in September. How's that generally received? I mean, do you... I it is received well. Because I think people want to understand, not I think, I know people want to understand what the church teaches. They want some clarity here. And not just wait until someone dies by suicide to talk about it. That's the worst time to talk about mm. it is at a funeral. The, the best time to talk about it is, is to prepare your community for the inevitable deaths by suicide that are going to happen in every parish. And to be able to prepare your people and explain this is what the church teaches. We don't want you to die by suicide, of course. But, but those of you that have lost someone to suicide, this is what the church teaches about the compassion of Christ and to have people be aware of it. And, and you always conclude it by giving people hope and saying that you can come to the church and talk about this and find, find healing. But also, like in the prayers of the faithful, we pray about every, lots of things, which is good. We should also pray for people that live with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and, right. and clinical depression. We should say it in the prayer. Mm. Uh, and we should also pray at the right appropriate times for people that have died by suicide. You know, if today's a typical day in the United States, 125 to 130 people are going to die from suicide today. It's about forty-five to 50,000 a year, yes, right? Yes, in Something that like range that. in the mm-hmm. U.S. And... You know, with uh, you know, there's also the the deaths by um, overdose, drug overdose have gone up dramatically, and in the last year or so, since uh, particularly since the pandemic. And you know, that's a thin line between what's a drug overdose and what's a suicide. And uh, you know, I don't know exactly how a coroner can tell one from the other, but you can. Uh, but but in any event, the dr- the deaths by drug overdoses have gone up skyrocketed like 30, 40 percent in the last year or two. Wow. So you know, that's all related. It's it's all interrelated. These uh, uh, drug addictions 
addictions and deaths from drug addiction and mental health and suicide is all interrelated. And it's something we need to speak to because, you know, it affects all of us. Mm -hmm. It affects all of us. About 20% of us at any one time are living with a mental illness or mental health condition. And over the course of a lifetime, about half of us will. So that means... We're all affected. If we're not affected directly, we're, uh, we're, we're close to someone that is affected directly by it. And to be talking, you know, talk about, I openly talk about now, I, have, I live with mild depression. And I, you know, when it's appropriate, I don't wear it as, you know, you know uh, waving a flag all the time about it. But, w- but when it's appropriate to talk about it, yeah, I can be a, a you know, good Catholic and be, a, be try to be as best a deacon as I can, uh, but still live with depression. And it's, it's, it's an illness. And with depression, anybody that lives with it knows it rolls in like a fog coming over the bay. You have no yeah. control over when well, it comes. Sure. And you yeah. kind of just got to sit there and wait for it to leave. You pray as best you can. Sometimes your prayer can only be, oh, my God. But you pray as best you can. And I tell you what's very consoling for me when I'm in the depths of depression is just someone to be there. You know, Don't offer any uh, answers or because you know, there are no answers. But uh, Presence. just the presence yeah just presence absolutely Uh, uh, that was one of the things i keep you know i keep going back to pope francis but it was very insightful in his uh, remarks on the uh, prayer intention for november that where he said that he said sometimes there are no answers and just accept that that there are no answers and to just be present and accompany people and i think for for so many of us that live with these conditions that's what we want we yeah. know we know you can't treat our depression or our schizophrenia or whatever it is that you're dealing with, but we do know you can love us and you can accept us and don't make us have to put on a, a happy face or some sort of mask it in some way, you know, just be with us. I had the great I've had the great privilege in my ministry, uh, particularly in any in any bereavement contexts mm-hmm. of experiencing the power of this kind of presence, and very recently. Um, I, a, a friend of mine, a friend of my wife and I, who I don't even really know that well, more her friend than mine, uh, somebody very close to them, uh, their son died in a car, in a car accident at 25 years old. Families from Ohio. The son was working in Los Angeles. Beyond that, there's no connection to LA, just the son being here and working in LA. He was going to work one day, was riding a motorcycle, going to work, commuting, got hit by a car and, and sadly died. This friend of my wife reached out to us and said, look, the family's coming to LA to deal with all the logistics about this, this, um, their son's death. And they don't know anybody there. Could you maybe help? And and we said, absolutely. Like whatever, whatever they need. I bring this up just as an example of accompaniment, because what I did Deacon was the mundanest stuff that anybody can think of, right? It wasn't about trying to cheer somebody up or try to explain to them anything. I mean, the, the, the tragedy was tremendous, obviously, but it was something like, you know what, your son's apartment that the landlord wants cleared out because they got to rent it to somebody else that I can't even imagine processing as a grieving parent. I've got that. Right. Let me handle that for you. That's wonderful. Right. That's one of the hardest things to do is clean out your kid's apartment after they've died. Brutal. Brutal, brutal. And especially if you flew into town and got nobody else to, you know, you're just doing it for that. So, but that presence, just what you said, which is just being there. And I only found this out weeks after when I heard from the father of this young man who called me and said that that was a major, you know, at at that moment, it was like a tremendous load off of his shoulders. It didn't even cross my mind. I was like, this is the dumbest thing that, that, that you don't need to worry about this. Right. 
but it was precisely what you just said. It was. mm -hmm. That's a wonderful example of what we hope mental health ministry in every parish will be. You don't have to be a psychologist. You don't have to be a therapist. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's better if you're not. You have to have this burning love for Christ and wanting to bring the presence of Christ into people's lives who are, are living with these illnesses. And that's a wonderful example. It's you accompany, you help them with the small things, you're with them, you let them, you can't, you can't make, you were not able to make that parent's grief go away. I mean, they, you know, they still, their grief was very deep and painful, but you accepted them and you helped them as best they could as they, as they struggled along with that, with that grief. And that's what accompaniment is all about. And that's what mental health ministry is all about is being with each other, supporting each other, accepting the illnesses and the suffering uh, in particular. And uh, that's, that's where spiritual healing comes in. And like I say often is, is that we're, we're crooked, broken people. Yeah. But Christ works through us in some mysterious way to bring that spiritual healing and consolation into their lives. Um, it's like the, the, another biblical story would be the Good Samaritan. You know, the Good Samaritan uh, found the found the fellow on the side of the road all beat up. He was not in a position to help him, you know, fix his wounds. He couldn't do that, but he could get him up on the on the donkey and bring him to uh, someone who could, you know, help him out with his keep, keeping him in the home and then coming back and checking on him to see how things are going. That's what we do in these ministries. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we don't, you know, we get them to the psychiatrist, we get them to the therapist, and at least encourage them to go get the mental health care. And and that's all a gift from God, of course, too. All of that mental health care is a gift from God, and let them get that help. But we don't abandon them. We don't forget about them. We come back and check on them, and uh, you know, and continue to have a relationship with them. It's that's that's all mental health ministry is. In a lot of ways, it's not that complicated. It's just getting over this fear, these anxieties, uh, distorted understandings of what mental health is and what mental illnesses are if we can get past all of that stuff then we can move forward then we can move forward and support each other better yeah that's great before we get to our final uh, segment of wait what um i wanted you to share with the audience where they can follow your work the work of the association of catholic mental health ministers the institute etc how they can find out more about your story we'll include this in the show notes for the episode but how would folks our our main way of communicating like many uh, organizations is, is our webpage, catholicmhm.org, catholicmhm.org. We have a Facebook page too, Catholic Mental Health Ministers. So you can, you know, get to us there at, uh, uh, on those social media and web, web pages. Um, I'm in the Diocese of Scranton, St. Peter's Cathedral. You know, feel free to pick up the phone and find me on, you know, and call me and talk to me, particularly if you're, if you're interested in starting a mental health ministry in your diocese or parish. The other thing I want to quickly add to a Catholic audience is, is that we provide all these resources and support through our web pages and you know, how to do this ministry, training opportunities uh, through the University of San Diego. Uh, we also will provide grants because uh, one of the last things we want to hear is people say, well, I'd love to start a ministry, but you know, it's going to cost some money. X amount, yeah. We want to take that issue off the table. Uh, so if, if, that, if that's an issue for anyone, we can provide some financial support to get this ministry Wonderful. seated and off the, off, the, off the ground and started. Well, my great prayer, Deacon, is that God prosper and continue to prosper your ministry, that people become aware, involved, and um, explore, even if, even if perhaps their lives haven't been touched by mental health issues, but explore this as an avenue for evangelization, because I think it's very well needed. So that's my prayer for, for well, you and for, and for your organization. Very good. All right, Deacon, you ready to play Wait What? As we close out our, uh, our, our episode here. Okay. The sure. first one is a softball. So uh, you'll get this one, I'm sure, very easily. So which of these, Deacon, is false 
about your home city of Scranton, Pennsylvania. Okay. Okay. Is it A, the Radisson Lackawanna Station Hotel is the site of unusually large reports of paranormal activity? Is it B, Scranton is home to one of only two museums in the world dedicated to the life of magician Harry Houdini? Or is it C, the nation's first continuously operating electrified streetcar system was established in Scranton in 1886, which inspired the city's nickname of the Electric City. Which of those is false? I think the one with the hotel. I don't. I haven't heard of that one. Okay. <laughs> well, that actually ends up being true. That it the Radisson Lackawanna Station Hotel was formerly okay. a train station, and right, now it's it this apparently beautiful Renaissance-style hotel. I hadn't heard about the haunted part of it. Well, okay. despite its beauty and charm, many guests have claimed to have seen spirits walking hmm. around the hotel, heard voices, experienced okay. other unexplained activity. The correct answer is B, Scranton, according to the Harry Houdini Museum, which is in Scranton, it is, it is the only. Oh, it's the only one. It's oh, the okay. only museum okay. in the world. So a little trick question. There okay, for you that was a little trick. I knew the Houdini thing was there. I didn't know if there was another. Figured yeah. as much. Yeah. Okay. Question number two, Deacon. The saints of the church are rightly lauded for their virtues of piety and holiness, but each in their own way dealt with many sacrifices and struggles. Little known, however, are the mental health struggles of many of these great men and women. Saints like St. Louis Martin, St. Jane Francis de Chantal, Venerable Matt Talbot, mm -hmm. even St. Albert the Great all right. suffered from the effects of mental illness. Just recently, another well-known saint touched by mental illness was canonized by Pope Francis. This new saint, an exemplary prelate who led a life of constant attention to the poor and was martyred in 1980 as a result, also struggled with mental health challenges. Who is this recently canonized oh, I wish I knew saint. the dates of when they were canonized. I know Oscar Romero uh, dealt with it. That Do is correct. Right? He was one of the few saints that were actually clinically diagnosed using modern methods. That's uh, very That's yeah. very right. Good right. job. Yes, yeah, right. so he struggled with scrupulosity for his whole life, but when he was 49, he was actually diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, and he underwent psychoanalysis and counseling at one of these times when it was not Right. You know, you had to kind of do things in more hushed tones, but um, but yeah, very good. Saint Oscar one, of the, one of the things I'm happy to say, the Vatican News just, uh, I wrote a piece for them uh, in association with the November Prayer Month on saints who live with mental illness and the, and the, the holiness that can be found uh, in, in those people, that God can work through everything to make a holy life. And he's made lots of saints who, who live with these conditions. Absolutely. And he was just canonized in 2018, so very recently. Right. Um, all right. Ready for the last question, Deacon? Sure. There's always a time machine question. Okay. So here it goes. This is a very personal one. So you get an opportunity to travel back in time 125 years okay. to your hometown of Scranton, oh, Pennsylvania. Okay. Okay. The year is 1896. Okay. And it's Sunday. Okay. Naturally, you wander into St. Peter's Cathedral, your home parish, mm -hmm. a brand new structure in 1896 that was completed only a few years before, and it's full of parishioners getting well, ready for you Mass. Do your, you do your research. Congratulations. I do. Mm -hmm. Now, you're walk, you walk in through the back of the church, and you catch the pastor's eye. He hasn't seen you before, so he walks up to say hello. Momentarily forgetting where you are, you introduce yourself as a permanent deacon. The pastor looks at you quizzically. He's never heard of a permanent deacon. Mm -hmm. Do you come clean with your time travel credentials and explain the restored permanent diaconate to him? Or do you cover your tracks, apologize for the misunderstanding, and enjoy the liturgy? Which would I do? Well, I would try to explain the permanent diaconate yeah, to him. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely I would try to explain that it's, it's a, it was a, a ministry that was always part of the church, and it was just simply restored in the uh, in the 60s, but it's always been around. The diaconate never never left, and that this is, this is a way of opening up the—giving the, uh, giving greater uh, uh, 
insights in, into the, the life of the church by having those of us that are, are married men and all the rest of that become permanent deaconess. I would have talked about that. It'd be an interesting uh, conversation about, about for sure. That, right. I thought where you were going with that time travel thing was is that back in those days, I don't know the exact years, but back in those days, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not quite that far back, but Father Patrick Payton was a sacristan sure. at the cathedral. I don't oh, know I if you know found that, that no, in your no, research, no, too. Yeah, his family came over from Ireland, uh-huh. and that was one of the first places he landed was Scranton. And was the. I thought you were going to say Father Payton came up and talked to me or something like that uh, yeah. back in those days. It I think it would be an interesting conversation also right before Mass begun, but I, I think you'd blow his mind. Who knows? He might incorporate that uh, permanent diacon into his homily for that particular day. There you go. Deacon, thank you for playing the game. Really privileged to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making the time. Um, And uh, if you are listening to myself and Deacon Ed's voice, please subscribe to the show. Tell a friend about the show. Help the show to grow. And we'll see you again next time on another episode of Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.